0: We're kind of getting towards the end. We only have about one or two more messages left uh, in Romans 8. But what a beautiful and precious passage. Again, it's been described of of the Bible itself. Some commentators have likened the Bible to uh, a ring and that the book of Romans is the diamond of the ring and that Romans 8 is the sparkle of the diamond of the ring. Uh, and as we've been going through this passage, I think you're seeing why, uh, how powerful it is, and uh, that God is in deeply concerned and uh, works in and through our lives through the Holy Spirit. Um, when you compare looking at Romans 7, for example, Paul is talking about really the battle that's going on, the struggle of the two natures, the, the flesh, and what he wants to do, he can't do, and that he doesn't want to do, he ends up doing, and just kind of the, the warring that's going on uh, within him. And uh, it says, actually, look at Romans 7, verse 24. He kind of, you almost feel his frustration, if you will. In Romans 7, 24, it says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I serve my, uh, myself, serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So he's talking about this battle, who should Who will free him? And what's interesting is that Romans 7, there's a lot of personal pronouns. I, me, my, there's a lot of struggles going on. But in Romans 8, it's virtually non-existent. Because why? The focus is now really on the work of God and the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit really doesn't get a lot of attention, doesn't really get a lot of preaching. But really, as you go through Romans 8, he's everywhere. He's all over. Uh, in working in just the minutest details of our lives. And we're going to see that uh, precisely today as well. But Romans 8 starts out with this. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that begins this very important chapter. So Romans 8 ends with no condemnation. At the very end of Romans 8, you end with no separation. In the middle, you have really, how shall we live right now, God? God. We're waiting for that one day when we shall be with you. But what do we do? And there's really no consternation. There's nothing to worry about right now. As we simply are led by the Spirit, we are free. We are free from the the past. We're free from the flesh. And it's uh, it's interesting. Romans um, eight one and two. Our freedom is found in our position in Christ, who we are in Jesus Christ, and that is accomplished by the power of the Spirit. We find that our freedom is secured by the Savior's sacrifice on the cross, and his sacrifice in our position in him enables us to live righteously. That's verses 3 and 4. Now we get in verses 5 through 8, it's the battle of mindsets. We have a, a basically a war against the flesh going on. Uh, the carnal mind is, uh, is not subject to the law of God. Remember, we talked about this law, too. Go back and just look at verse um, chapter uh, 8, verse 2. It says, For the law of the spirit of, of the life of Christ, Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. And we talked about what this law means. It's not a law like a law that's on the books, like, you know, you don't rob a bank. It's not like that. Or don't go, 55, you know, is the speed limit. It's not like that. Don't break the law. The idea is like a law, more like a principle, like, say, the law of gravity, for example. Uh, in the flesh, we are dragged down a certain direction. And you know what? In our flesh, and without Christ, there, we have no hope, okay? But with Christ, in our position in Christ, what? He basically stops that law of gravity In its tracks. He stops the law of sin in its tracks. And now we are under a new law, under a new principle. That's the idea that we're talking about here. But here we have in verses five through eight, this is the different mindsets. And ultimately, what it leads to is this that in verse eight, so they that are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the simple matter. There's just two choices on the shelf pleasing what? God or pleasing self. Okay? So that's what it amounts to. So as we are believers in Christ, we are, we do not ha- we are not, no longer under the power of the flesh. I mean, it still bugs us. We still deal with that old flesh, and we will until glory. But it doesn't have the p- same power it did before we were saved. Praise God for that, okay? So with that, verses 9 through 11 talks about the assurance that we have of a spiritual mind. The, the key to living in victory, and that's kind of our theme for the summer here, is living in victory. The key to living in victory is to have a spiritual mind that's submitted to Jesus Christ. Simply said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. How do we do that then? How how do we live in the spirit? How do we live in victory? Having the spiritual mind. Our obligation is this. We're no longer obligated to live after the flesh. You don't have to do it. Well, you can say, well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. If you if you if you are a child of God today, the devil did not make you. Yeah, he might throw a temptation at you. That's possible. But he didn't make you do it. All right, you are not under bound under that flesh anymore. You're under a different. Remember, you're on a new army now. Okay, you're on the winning side. All right, we are victors in Christ. So our obligation though is not to live out the flesh, but rather to live after the Spirit. Therefore, we should mortify or put to death our flesh. Is the idea. With this, our calling is then to be led by the Spirit as children of God. Uh, verses fourteen and fifteen, it says that we are the sons of God. We're no longer under the spirit, uh, uh, the spirit of bondage. Okay, we cry, uh, we have the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we talked about this in verses uh, up to verse seventeen, talking about our adoption. The idea of adoption here in Scripture is not just. Uh, You know, when someone adopts a child, that child doesn't just become a part of the family. In God's mindset for adoption is, yes, you're a part of the family, but that's just the beginning. Because you are given every right and privilege of heaven. Uh, You get everything. Like I said, remember we talked about uh, the Ben-Hur story. Judah Ben-Hur, when he was adopted by um, the the Roman commander of that slave ship, uh, of that galley, he basically adopted Judah Ben Hur as his own, not just as a charioteer of Rome, but he became, he literally gained all the rights and privileges and the name of, his, uh, of the, the man who adopted him. He gains everything, and he did that in the place of his son who had died. That's just, if you want to go back and watch Ben Hur, really great movie, in my opinion, but nonetheless, I diverge. Okay. So, with that in mind, our calling, again, is to be led by the Spirit as children of God. But also, not only are we led by the Spirit, we're also loved by the Spirit. That's our testimony. God gives us inner assurance of God's truth that there is no condemnation anymore. Praise God. We are justified, okay? No condemnation. With that, we will share the glories and the sufferings of Christ, which will bring greater glory. And in verse 18, that kind of where things shift a little bit. Verse 18 says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. With, which shall be revealed in us So this is kind of a turning point here in, in Romans chapter 8 So this is really talking about a brighter day There's a glory of a brighter day coming Okay A, a beautiful promise that we have That really is the, prom, is the Suffering that we have Is there a purpose to it? Yes And here's the point God doesn't waste suffering That's right. He doesn't waste suffering Very very important to understand that Okay but here's the thing. Why do we suffer? Have you ever thought about that? Why do we suffer? And yes, because of our fallen world and the sin that affects us, maybe even of our own sin. But nonetheless, we, are, we, we face these tragedies. we talked about uh, in the past couple of weeks how many tragedies that have been around us and in people's lives and uh, the burdens that people are carrying right now. Uh, is there any hope? Is there any, um, is there any purpose in that? Yes, God doesn't waste suffering. Because why? The path to glory... God promises a a glory, but the path to glory with Jesus is also the path of suffering with Jesus. How do you know that? Look back in verse 17. And if children, that's us, children of God, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we be glorified together. And you see this in other places in Paul's writings too, that suffering is there with glory. With deliverance, they're tied in together and God has a plan for that. But really a key question where the rubber meets the road today, guys, is this. Is the road to future glory worth the present pain? Is the road to future glory worth the present pain? Right now, some of you are going through times where you're saying, yes, I believe that, but it hurts right now, today. That's what Mark Zachman, I mentioned that last week when their granddaughter Gracie was, uh, was killed in that, that accident. And they, they, we, we talked about the hope of Jesus and the hope of heaven. And he says, yes, I believe that, but it, it hurts right now. I said, I get that. We get that, folks. You've gone through tragedy and understanding. It hurts, okay? But is it worth it? Is it worth it? In Christ, it is. And that's our point. And Paul is not kind of dismissing that. Remember, in other passages, he he talks like about our light affliction. It's not going to be compared to the weight of heaven, weight of glory, okay? And so, what light affliction? I mean, this is not a light affliction. What some of you guys have gone through, what the Zachmans have gone through, that's not a light affliction. But compared to the weight of glory, It really is dim in in that regard. We're not ignoring it. And here's the point. Paul is saying here in verses uh, 19 through 22, in that regard, that creation itself, or the creature or creation, groans uh, for a brighter day. Okay, With all the disasters, and look what's going on in Hawaii right now, in Maui. Just the natural disasters that are taking place. Does not creation groan for that brighter day? And the idea is this, that creation is like on its tiptoes waiting for their redemption. Okay, Lord, come on, anytime, we're expecting you to come. And so the hope that we have in Christ, here's the thing, how do you make it through suffering? How do you make it through? It's through hope, hope that we have in Christ. That's how we have it, we have hope, okay? That's actually the end of verse uh, 24 and 25. We are saved by hope. But uh, hope that is uh, seen is not hope. What a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? For if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience endure it? We eagerly wait for it is the idea. Uh, With perseverance or endurance is the idea that we have there. But the creation groans and even the Christian groans. We are also waiting for that brighter day. We believe the promises of Christ that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We believe that. But what do we do when we're going through the moment we're in right now? And it's like this we should be on our tiptoes and say, Lord, even so come, Lord Jesus. That should be our goal. That should be our focus. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to look at. Look at what's ahead more than what's around you. Yes, you feel kind of like you're in a pit, you can't really see what's on the other side right now. But God knows, God sees the plan. So here's the thing. What, bring, what keeps our hope bright in this midst of suffering? It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why God has given you the Holy Spirit to leave you. He will not leave you comfortless. We need hope. And we need help. And the Holy Spirit gives us both of those. The Holy Spirit answers this. The Bible says, and we talked about this last week, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our infirmities, and in our own weaknesses. That's verses 26 and 27. The Holy the Spirit also helps us in our infirmities. We know not... What we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself make it intercession for us, which groanings that cannot be uttered. So the Holy Spirit helps us in our infirmities, and in our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, the one who comes alongside, who is with us during that time. He also helps us in our intercessions with groanings which cannot be uttered, with sighs literally too deep for words. When you get to the point of of praying, and finally you kind of end up, maybe we felt this way. You get to a point where it says, man, I just don't know what to pray about anymore. I pray, I've done, brought this to God so many times, I'm just running out of words. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. And guess what? Like an advocate, like a lawyer does for his client, he steps in and he, and he basically says the words that we can't. This is the idea with size too deep for that. It's interesting that we are limited, but the Holy Spirit is limitless. really amazing in how he can do that for us. The Holy Spirit helps us then pray, and here's the key point. Look at the very end of verse 27. According to the will of God. That's the thing. We need to pray according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit helps us to do that. Because I'll be honest with you, when we pray, we might not pray according to, to God's will. We want our will to be done. Again, like we talked about, and it was interesting using that illustration last week. Someone's diagnosed with cancer, and then on Monday... Marcy's diagnosed with cancer. And what happens? How do you pray when you receive such a diagnosis? Do you pray for deliverance? Or that God would heal you of that? Or do you pray for endurance that God would help you to, maybe even that's the way he's taking you home to heaven. How do you pray? Which is the right way to pray? I'll be honest with you, both ways are the right way to pray. But praying according to the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, he helps us to pray the right way at that right moment. The Holy Spirit helps us. We're not abandoned. Us. So here's the point. The Spirit's intercession is the confidence that nothing can separate us from God. So what do we make sense of all this? This has been a quick, well, a little bit more than a quick synopsis of the, the verse that we've covered. But here's the thing. on or One day, the groaning that we have will give place to glory. The Holy Spirit gives us hope and help according to the will of God. And so, And what is the will of God then in the midst of our present groaning? And we find that in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. This beautifully captures the picture of those who live in the Spirit, have been led by the Spirit, and have been loved by the Spirit, and been helped by the Spirit. So beloved, you are not alone. God has purposed a glorious future for you as we await his return. That's the point of this. Romans 8.28. I said if there's... Verses that have been memorized. This is probably one of the top verses that have been memorized. Maybe a lot of you know John 3.16, for example. A lot of you know John 11.35. Or maybe you don't. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus' Jesus' web. So you got that memorized, okay. But in this, Romans 8.28, this is probably one of the most memorized verses. And I encourage you to memorize God's word. I encourage you to memorize this verse in particular. Very, very important. It was R.A. Torrey. Who once said, concerning Romans 8.28, that this verse is a soft pillow for a tired heart. A soft pillow for a tired heart. And true enough it is. Right before the message or the offertory, the Nelsons sang a song, Rejoice in the Lord. It was written by Ron Hamilton. Ron Hamilton is otherwise known as Patch the Pirate. Uh, and I don't know if you know the story so much about why he became Patch the Pirate. Or uh, in, his, in his ministry. He, um, as a student, he was uh, learning music and things like that. And, uh, and he had a kind of an a, idea to uh, write different musicals and all that. But he never envisioned what would happen in, in, in um, 1978 when he was diagnosed with cancer of the eye. And uh, basically they had to remove his eye. And so he wore a patch for a while and, uh, to, until they figured out what to do next. And so he goes to church and the kids started calling him. Uh, hey, you look like a pirate with that patch on your eye, and so Patch the pirate it became, and that became known as that became his ministry. And God used that moment of great difficulty and trial in his life, or he and, and Shelley's life, and God used that moment to really turn their whole direction of life and ministry for a greater good. And they have been a blessing to many churches and Christians around the world with their music ministry called Majesty Music. I had the privilege of knowing Ron Hamilton as a friend. Uh, My first trip to Israel was in 1997. And on that tour was Ron Hamilton and his his son Jonathan. Jonathan passed away some years ago now. Uh, Jonathan and I are the same age. And uh, we actually climbed climbed the caves of Qumran together. It was a blast. I have some good memories. But uh, knowing Ron personally, and I tell you what, he was probably one of the most humble people you ever meet. God used that work in his life. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying a servant and molding a man. That is exactly what the lesson that we learn is from Romans 8.28. Rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. That's the message of the song. So does God make a mistake? No, he doesn't. Does he let you or anyone else fall through the cracks? He doesn't. My encouragement to you is this: that God does have a purpose and a plan for your life. We 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 hear that from different churches. God has a plan for your life, and I'll be honest with you: after they say that, you kind of scratch your head, exactly what that is. But we're going to find out from Romans eight twenty eight today exactly what is that plan, what is that purpose, and it's very specific. It has a glorious future to it. So we find here in Romans eight twenty eight: this is the certainty of God's purpose. The certainty. In other words, it's a sure thing. How do we know that? Because it begins here. And we know. Right there. We know. I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of things that we don't know in the Christian life. For example, look at verse 26. The Holy Spirit uh, prays for, uh, for us because we don't know how to pray, is the idea. We know not what we should pray. There are some things we really don't know or we don't quite fully understand, but there is something we do know. We do know that all things work together for good. This is something we do know. And this is like intuitively. This is something that like should be common among us. In other words, it's kind of like saying, I know the taste of honey. If I mention honey and the taste of it, you know intuitively that it's sweet and it's good. But if you describe someone who's never had honey before, well, unless you experience it, you really can't understand it. But you know it. If you tasted it, you know it. It's true. Honey is good, right? I love honey. I put it on my toast every morning, okay? But nonetheless, we see this, that as a child of God, it should become part of our own nature intuitively that we know that all things work together for good. And this is really a promise of our sanctification and the certainty of it, that we are sanctification to be set apart for God's purpose and that purpose is glorious. We know, okay, but then it says what? We know that all things, all things work together for good. What is this all things? By the way, all things is not some things. Well, there's some things in our life that God uses, and some things He don't. All right. Have you ever been to a uh, uh, maybe someone who's a tinker or maybe a woodworker? And uh, you know what? They have a purpose for everything. Even that I know, Brother Les, we could probably acknowledge this. There's probably some block of wood that there's a purpose for that somewhere. If it's not today, there will be somewhere down the road. Everything has a purpose and a place. All right. And some of you wives are like, "I wish we clean this stuff out." Okay. <laughs> But God has a purpose for all things. All things. Not just some things. Then this shows us God's sovereignty and control. But it's interesting. All the things that happen in our life. And we talked in the last few verses of all the groanings that we suffer. That we deal with. And the, the struggles that we have. How do we pray? How do we, do, how do we go through things? And understand that God does have a purpose. That all things work together for good. So it, Romans 8.28 should be viewed then not as temporal, not temporary things, but eternal things. There's a greater picture than just meeting us today. So one thing I want to say this Romans 8.28 sometimes can be taken as, uh, man, this is a great verse, and God just helped me get through this day, help me get through uh, this work day. And you know, God does help you with those things, for sure. But it's, it's a bigger picture than that. This is to help us really on our journey to life until we see him in glory. That's the idea. So my question is to you. How do you view all things? The things that happened in your life, how do you view that? Do you remember Jacob, the patriarch? you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember all the things that befell Jacob. Remember that Joseph was sold by his brothers and slavery. But what did Jacob think? He thought that Joseph was what? Dead. And He suffered a lot of other things. There was a famine going on, a drought. Everything was really going against him. And he said... In, in Genesis 42, that he was kind of bemoaning, All things are against me. That's what he said. All things are against me. But then go to his son Joseph and look at all the trials that he went through his life. He was sold by his brothers, he was uh, falsely accused in Potiphar's house, he spent time in prison. Uh, he, he went through about 17 years of going through basically undeserved uh, trials and suffering. And what did he say, though, at the very end, when he sees his brothers, and at the very end, even after his father dies, what does he say to his brothers? What well, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's the Romans eight twenty eight of Genesis. Amen. This is very, very important as we see that. So my question again, how do you view all things? And how you view all things will make a difference in how you see God's plan in your life. Very, very important here. That's the purpose of God. Works together. This working together, this is God's operation, and God uses all things in cooperation. He's sovereign. He's in control, folks. Can't uh, underestimate. He uses, he work, everything works together in God's operation, and he uses all things in cooperation. Nothing is isolated from itself. God uses a different piece in your life uh, for that purpose. And then he works all things for good. Well, what is this good? Have you ever thought about that? We know that all things work together for good. Some people simply say, well, God just want, I just want God. God, just make me comfortable today. Take this headache away, which, you know, that's a way to pray for. But think bigger than that. That's my challenge. Think bigger than that. That's what Paul is saying here. For the good to them that love God. So the good here, what is that good? What is the good in the purpose of God? It's found in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to be conformed to what? The image of his son the good that God is wanting in his plan for you is that you become like Christ. Amen. But not just that. There's, and, but wait, there's more. Right? There's more. Why? Look at verse 30. What is the end goal of the good in God's plan for us? It says, For over he did predestinate, he called, he called, he justified, those he justified, he also glorified. The end result of God's plan for your life is that you would be glorified like Christ so you be Christ like and then be glorified as well as well praise God for that Colossians 3 verse 4 says when Christ who is our life shall appear then we then ye also appear with him in glory it's interesting when we think though about the trials that we deal with right now I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. how many have ever heard of her Johnny or Johnny and friends okay really interesting ministry uh, she, uh, as a teenager, she became a quadriplegic in a diving accident. And now, it was about 50 years later now, it's been about, that she is still doing a ministry. God used that moment of tragedy in her life where she couldn't really do anything. And now is a spokesman, spokesman for the Lord. And someone asked her this question to Johnny and asked, you know, what do you think is the purpose of suffering? And she said this. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let's say that again. As a quadriplegic, she's saying God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. We hate that she suffered such a horrific accident in the trials that she's gone through. But guess what? God is accomplishing what he loves as she submits to him. She sees the bigger picture to be Christ-like and one day she'll share in that glory. That's as good as now. Praise God for that. Again, how do you view all things? Good question. What is this to? Verse 28 says, This is to them who love God. Who are those who love God? Those are the believers. Now, one thing I've got to say this that Paul is not making two categories of Christians here. There are Christians who love God and Christians who don't love God. Folks, if you're a Christian who, don't, who doesn't love God... You're not a Christian. <laughs> okay? That's pretty straightforward. Okay? So, here's the thing. To those who love God are those who are His. This is the idea. And this is the point. This is a loving loving God is a characteristic of those who have been called. This is a characteristic of lo, those who have been called. Loving God. This should be a part of our lives. Now, you might not feel that one day, but... That's, that's part of that new nature that we have in Christ. That's our position in Christ. Okay? So this is, this is really, the whole point of this is really to give the believer assurance in God's love, and his plan for us, that nothing escapes his sight, nothing escapes his power. He knows int- intricately every aspect of your life. And then he says in ver- the end of verse 28, those who are called according to his purpose. So according to his purpose, this is interesting. The calling here, here's, here's kind of an interesting idea in the Bible, especially in, in Paul's writings, that whenever God calls, his people listen. That's the point. When God calls, his people listen. This is, by the way, this is not a general invitation. When we talk about calling, like, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is not a, just a general invitation to salvation for the whole world, but this specific uh, to those who, who, who are saved, okay? It's something that we know now. What's the idea? Okay? And here's the evidence How do we know that we are the called? Is that we love God? It's very simple. How do we know that we're called of God? Because we love God. It works, it works in tandem together. That's very, very important. So this is a message for us uh, that we have assurance. We, have, we know God's purpose. What is the goal then of this purpose? We find it in verse 29. We already talked about it in verse 29. That for whom he did for no, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's plan ultimately is for our good and for his glory. Even though it might hurt sometimes, it's for our good and for his glory. He predestines us to be like Christ. In other words, how should we be like Christ? What does it mean to be Christ like? The characteristics of in holiness, in wisdom, in mercy, love, humility, in glory, even. All those things that we share with Christ. And the idea, the ultimate idea for that is that he might be the firstborn or preeminent among many brethren, is the idea. In other words, that many of the human family will be saved. That's God's purpose and plan. So with that in mind, how then can we know that all things work together for good? How can Christ be magnified in and through us that we become Christ-like? And I go back to Gracie Hines' testimony. Of course, as an 11-year-old dying in this tragic accident uh, here just about a week and a half ago now in talking with Mark and Linda and with the family at the funeral even, their prayer was this, that, um, well, let me just say this. In regards to that story, I've heard from many folks who have been able to share Gracie's testimony with others in witnessing, to share the gospel, share what God has done in giving such grace and outpouring of love uh, through Gracie's own testimony. And the, the family at the funeral, their desire was that people would come to know Jesus Christ through Gracie's death. That we say, well, is Gracie's death a good thing? According to God's plan, it's, he can accomplish something good through that, right. even, even through the pain. And I pray that that'd be to the honor and glory. I, I shared that with Marcus. I says, I was able to share with a few folks the story of Gracie and how people are trusting in God through that. And I said, if there's a way to use Gracie's story, do it. That's the idea of Romans 8:28, that Jesus Christ would be honored through that. So that's the goal of his purpose, to be Christ-like for our good and for his glory. Then we have the chain of God's purpose. And this is the scope, the biggest picture here. It, 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 there's like this chain that begins in verse 29, about foreknowledge, foreknow, predestinate, verse 30, those he called, those he justified, those he glorified. It's kind of like a chain of events that God works and seeks. In other words, this is, this is like a guaranteed assurance that God will not abandon his own that's what's going on here. So just kind of an idea. By the way, there's a lot of uh, different thoughts and different teachings on this. I'll try to make it as simple as we can here in the next few moments. For no, basically, this guards our past. God, a lot of people think about foreknowledge. This is God knows what's going to happen to you. But the idea is really it's that God knows who you are. It's a personal relationship that God has. Uh, It says in the book of Amos, for example, Amos 3.2, God says, you only, talking about Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God knows about every family on the earth. Of course, he's God. But only Israel has a special relationship with him. Why? God says, I didn't choose you, Israel, because you're the greatest in the nations. I chose you because what? I loved you. I chose you because I love you. And so here's the point. The sovereign God knows you deeply. He cares for you. He says also, those who fornew he predestinated. This is also regarding a past for our glory to be conformed to Christ. And the idea is this, that this is not a predestined to your eternal destination. He predestines some to heaven, some to hell. It's not like that. It's predestined. Think of it. It's a predestination. What's the destination of the believer? Glory. That's the, that, this is the point of that. That's what predestination is about in, the, in this passage, in this context. You, as a child of God, are predestined for glory. That's the direction he's sending you. It says here in uh, Ephesians 1.11, in whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the promise of him who worketh all things, like that, after the counsel of his own will. It's talking about that. We were predestined for that inheritance. In other words, God sees the bigger picture. Have you ever, um, maybe you, how many of you like to do a puzzle? All right, we have puzzle lovers here, okay? Uh, for me, it's like I got to be in the mood for it. That's just my mentality. But what's the thing? When you get to do a puzzle together, have, you know, you just empty all the pieces out. What's the best way to put a puzzle together? Someone give me those experience. What's the best way to start doing it? Do the corners. Do the, do the thing. And then you work in the middle, right? But here's the thing. In our life, it's hard for us to put the pieces together. But who can we trust? God. Who? Guess what? He knows the big picture of it. He's seen. He takes the picture on the box. He knows what it's going to look like. He has a plan. He has a purpose. A destination. And right now, we're scratching our head trying to figure this out. But by trusting God, he knows everything. God sees the big picture. That's the idea of predestination. God sees it. Okay? Those he predestined, he also called. This regards to our present. God summons us personally into a relationship with himself Through Christ. Those he called he justified. That's to be declared innocent. To be declared righteous. He does that presently. And then also those he glorified. This is regarding future. But interestingly enough glorified is in the past tense. But it's in regard to our future. In other words God's promise of our glorification is as good as done. That's the idea. We will experience God's glory with him forever. And this is the point. And this is I want you to rejoice about folks. This and I am rejoicing in this as well. What we gain here from this passage of Romans 8, 28 through 30 is this, that the believer is assured that he will be glorified. Therefore, he will not fall short of the glory of God. Rather, he will experience the glory of God. In our sins, we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Now he's saying, guess what? Believer, you will have the, you're gonna, you already, as good as done. You have the glory of God. You're not going to fall short. You've got it through Jesus Christ. What? This is an assurance. You can't lose your salvation, folks. It's as sure, as solid as the promises and the work of God. That's his accomplishment right here. You can't break that chain. So the main point of this, this is from one commentator. The main point of this passage is to assure believers that God has a plan that he is unfolding and one that he provides fully for our future glory. But the greatest example of Romans 8.28, we mentioned others before, but the greatest example is the cross of Jesus Christ. Think of that. The greatest example of Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. Why is that? It was on the cross that the greatest injustice turned into the greatest moment of history as Jesus, the sinless one, the innocent Lamb of God, took our sins upon Himself and died in our place so that we can be reconciled and have peace with God. And those who have trusted in him, those who are his his child. And I pray today you know Jesus Christ as your savior. I pray you know that today. If you don't, my word, come to Christ. Come to the cross. But in that, if you have done that, rejoice. Because our sufferings now become more manageable in the light of the cross. The purpose of God is for us to be glorified with Christ. Whatever we may experience in this life, whatever heartache Whatever trial, it will be used of God to conform us to be like him. God doesn't waste suffering. He doesn't. The present suffering is worth it as we await the future glory. I conclude with this verse of Philippians 1.6. Another good verse to memorize. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Trust in the promise of God. Why? Because he sees the big picture. Praise God for that.